Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Joining the show today is Paul Begg, coming to us from Maidstone, Kent in the UK, Carl Kopick from North London, and Andrew Firth from Bradford in West Yorkshire. Andrew is a photographer and graphic designer whose work has appeared on the covers of the Whitechapel Society Journal and Casebook Classic Crime Magazine, inside the pages of Paul Begg and John Bennett's CSI Whitechapel, and as promotional material and delegate packages at numerous Victorian crime conferences hosted by the likes of 1888-2016, the Whitechapel Society, the Jack the Ripper Conference, and most recently, the East End Conference. And anytime I'd like some unique podcast art for the Rippercast program, I'd turn to Andrew Firth, and he always comes through with something very special. If that's not an active enough resume, he's also published three books, Past Traces, Fragments of the East End, and most recently, Ripperland. We are pleased to finally be able to welcome Andrew Firth to the show. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi, Jonathan. Now, I'll begin the show by asking the usual question I ask the first-time guests. How did you become interested in Ripperology, Andrew? Okay, well, how did I become interested? Um, I was a young, fresh-faced 19-year-old back in 1991, and uh, I was just about to go on my lunch when a colleague returned to his desk saying, have you seen what I've just bought in the newsagents? And he showed me this magazine, and it said it was... Um, uh, I forget the name of it now. It was um, a casebook crime special magazine on Jack the Ripper, and it had a, a copy of the Illustrated Police News, a reproduction in, um, copy of that. And I, I was fascinated by it. I just I love the idea of, of a reprodu- reproduction Victorian newspaper. I've always been fan- uh, interested in London and uh, interested in Victorian things. So he lent me to look through, and within within half an hour, I just knew that was it. I had to go and buy my own copy, and that's really what started it. Um, and that was just a couple of years before, obviously, the um, the Maybrick Diary um, started. Uh, you know, was was uh, released on an unsuspecting public. Uh, and when I bought that. That that was sort of you know furthered my interest, and I think that was really the thing that really got me into it seriously. So, that's really how it started. And you're known mostly for your photography and your graphic design work, as I had said in my introduction. Prior to to your interest in ripperology, did you consider yourself like a hobbyist photographer and an artist, or how did the two no. interests kind of come together? It's sort of been a late sort of development for me. I mean, I wasn't really interested in photography very much other than the usual kind of photographs that you might take when going on on, on vacation. It was just really a question of, you know, taking photos with a 35mm camera and there are, your, there are your holiday photos to look back on in, in future years. I think really the, the, the photography only came about when, when digital photography became commonplace. So we're talking sort of the early 2000s. Um, and when I got my first digital camera I was you know really pleased with the way that you could get the photos home on onto the PC and then start treating them in different ways with various graphics packages and uh, I realized that it was a, like a, an outlet for being creative and so it's, it sort of started there and I think the earliest um, photographs that I've taken personally of um, Whitechapel and Spitalfields have been around um, were taken around 2003 when I've got my first digital camera so I think that's really where it started off the um, you know, graphic design and, and uh, the photo montages that I do came a lot later once I got more skilled with using things like Photoshop. 
And you didn't come out with your first book, Past Traces, until 2009. Explain to us how the publication of, like, was there a period prior to 2009 that you were um, sharing your photographs with uh, ripperologists or posting them on Mm. message boards or anything like that, that kind of nudged you into publishing a book or well basically what it was when when it came to 2009 up to that point i'd shared a few of the photographs that i've been taking in sort of 2007 2008 um on uh on the casebook site um i've been uh, lurking on that site for years reading all the posts and everything um but i'd only sort of joined up around 2008 i think or maybe even 2009 but i i was i shared a few and uh, people such as um philip hutchinson and john bennett um who obviously were both very familiar with the area uh, made some encouraging noises about the photos i'd taken so that encouraged me to post a few more but when when it came to the first book past traces it was um a privately published affair through blurb um like a self-publishing outlet um and it was basically a collection of all the photos that i'd taken between 2003 and 2009 and also my first um you know photo montages which for, for those that haven't seen what i do um i take old photographs um go back to, uh, go back to the same places where those old photographs were taken, take a new photograph from the same viewpoint, and then merge the two together in some, you know, uh, imaginative or arty way to show the sort of then and now, but rather than in two, two shots side by side, uh, you show them in, in one combined image. Um, so that my first photo montages were, were in that first book, Past Traces, and even though it wasn't, it, it, you, you could only buy it from one website. Um, it still managed to sell, in, I think, in excess of a hundred copies before it, uh, I finally withdrew it from sale. So uh, I was I was quite encouraged by that. So, so did the publication of the book Past Traces kick off your role of producing graphics for the various Ripperology outfits? Or did those two avenues just kind of run separately? Uh, I think it did. Uh, the, the, um, the the publication of Past Traces in 2009, um, that sort of got me known to uh, a handful of people, uh, including Adam Wood, who was uh, running the uh, 2010 um, conference at the King's Stores in London. And uh, he, he said, could he use some of the photo montages I'd done in the delegates booklet that was handed out to delegates? So that, that really represents the first sort of involvement I had with the conferences. Put, uh, you know, the, he, I think he used maybe three or maybe four um, of, the, of the montages out of past traces. So I didn't really have much else to do with the design or anything, but because uh, obviously Adam, Adam Wood himself is a, uh, an, an accomplished uh, graphic designer and, and he does publishing, obviously. Um, but that was that was the sort of the first involvement with that, and then from then on, um, I went on to designing uh, conference packs um, for the York Conference in 2012, the London Conference in 2013, and the Nottingham Conference in 2015. And I also did the um, the, the um, delegates booklet for the 2014 Whitechapel Society Conference in Salisbury. Um, so it, it did start it, to answer your question. It did start, it sort of kickstart everything off. Um, and uh, you know, started that involvement, which uh, continues to this day. And then you've you've also done four London job photo books, correct? That that's right. Although I, I would say I've not really done them. I've I've curated them and put them together. And again, they were they were published through Blurb. Um, so basically, I, I put them together. But the the idea is that everybody on 
the London job who wanted to contribute photos and written captions could contribute them so that when, you, when you're reading the book, hearing different people speak at different times and um, getting their reflections on what they saw and what they photographed when we were doing each London job walk. Um, so that, that, that you know, I, I designed the books and curated them, but they, they aren't solely my work. They've got uh, plenty of contributions from, from the people who went on those walks. Um, and... I mean, they, they are still available now, but they are they're, they're because of the way that Blurb runs, um, they are quite quite sort of expensively priced now. But they are they are, they are still available. And Fragments of the East End is also published by Blurb, um, mm-hmm. and and is it kind of like a print on demand? Um, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's probably why it's so expensive. I mean, some people will call it vanity publishing, but uh, I believe vanity publishing involves paying the publisher several, you know, several hundred pounds just to have things published. You know, it's that kind of thing. Blurb isn't like that. You basically submit the digital file to them, and then they will print a copy when somebody orders it. Um, but Fragments of the East End followed in 2011, and it was a much uh, larger book than Past Traces, and it had a, it had a, a greater sort of remit. It wasn't just Jack the Ripper's London. It was also about um, various things like, um, you know, it has um, uh, the, the Wickham's department store, the story behind that, um, various various other locations. So it was more sort of an East End book, um, basically because I was running out of things to, to do photo montages of. So, um, but that, that was sort of a more wide, wide-ranging book um, that, uh, that followed a couple of years later. And is that out of print as well as, as past traces? Yes, I, it is. I, I decided when, when I was doing Rippleland, uh, I decided to take um, past traces and uh, fragments of the East End um, out of circulation. So those who've got a copy have got something that's pretty limited edition. Because um, really, Rippleland is, um, is is really past traces deluxe. It's it's the, what, what I, I like to think of as you know my uh, definitive thing. It's it's what, what I've always wanted to do. And so I thought, well, you know, we'll take the others off sale. So that's what I've done. So there's no plans to maybe reissue past traces and fragments of the East End for those of us who were unable to get them the first time around, like um, as like a a combo um, book or anything like that. I, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I, I don't honestly know. I mean, never say never. Uh, I've got all the uh, all the material still um, archived away, but uh, whether or not that, that, that happens, I don't know. It, uh, I'm, I'm sort of at a point now that, that uh, Ripplands come out. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with myself. So obviously, I'll be doing next year's East End conference um, graphics and conference pack and everything. But um, apart from that, you know, I'm, I'm still looking for other projects to work on. So. Has your participation in the various conferences, has it been limited to just producing the graphics for the conferences or or are you seeing yourself as the years go by taking on a, a more of an organizing role? Yeah, I mean, it certainly involves uh, organising. I mean, the, the the graphics do take up uh, a large amount of time, but um, I've, um, I mean, for example, I, I approached for the East End conference. I, I approached Carl and asked him if if he would uh, kindly speak at the conference. So. Uh, I am sort of integrating with speakers as well, and obviously, uh, when it comes to sorting out the the, the detail, the minute details of um, of how the conferences will work, I'm also involved in that and uh, sorting out, you know, where where, for example, you know, 
things like uh, charity donations go to from the raffle or uh, little, little little things like that. So yes, I am I am involved in that as well. But uh, I, have a, I have a funny feeling that my my role in the actual organisation of the event for next year will be increased um, quite a lot because there's, there's a lot to uh, organise for next year. But I shall still be doing the graphics. So <laughs> that's that's where my passion lies. Okay, and you're you've been highly praised for your delegate packs that are handed out to the guests at the various conferences. Can you describe to our listeners who might have not seen one what kind of uh, items and, and you know basically what what all goes into producing some of these delegate packs by giving us a few examples from past years? Okay, well, um, so some of the packs have, have been um, in box folders, plastic box folders, and inside you, you'll have, for example, a delegates booklet which will have list the running order for the conferences. It'll have articles in. Um, graphic content, um, you know, by, by that I mean, you know, graphics that I've created, um, and that's sort of like your your guide to the conference. It has it credits who did what and all the rest of it, and there are some some fun things in there as well. But uh, then there'll be other things like postcards and uh, delegate badges. We've had CDs in the past with um, you know music recordings and uh, various bits portions of spoken word things re- relating to the case. Um, I'm trying to think what else we had. I know in, in Nottingham we actually had a, a notepad that was done in the style of a, a Scotland Yard uh, report form. Um, if you've ever seen the, um, there's a, a pack of uh, um, replica documents from the um, from, from the Scotland Yard files uh, that you can purchase. I think it comes from the, the National Archives, and uh, I basically um, designed a pad that looked like unused uh, Scotland Yard report paper and that went down very well with people because obviously they can then forge their own forge their own case reports and, <laughs> and such like so uh, so there was one of those in, in the uh, 2015 pack we've had posters and things it's basically it, it's to give delegates something to take away with them and uh, act as a souvenir um, because obviously people pay a lot of money to come to these conferences by the sheer nature that you know they, they, they cost they cost money to put on um, and so it's giving them something back um, and yeah you know, having, having something to, to remember the conference by so that's that's really what the what the conference packs consist of the same for um, you know individual booklets and things like that it's, it's, it's providing a, a nice souvenir of the the event and so let's talk about Ripperland. How did the idea come about for you to do a third book, Ripperland, which um, has just been published by Mango Books? Okay, well, uh, Ripperland is basically sort of the book that Past Traces should have been, because Past Traces was done when 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 I was when I only had um, a small access to a small number of, of old photographs of the East End and also hadn't been taking photographs for more than about five or six years so it wasn't as as wide ranging as I would have liked and really I, I wanted to go back and and do it better if you like and do it do it um to, to, to encompass everything I could think of that uh, that somebody might go looking for when they're visiting Whitechapel and Spitalfields, all, all the different buildings and streets and what have you. So it, it was really a case of doing past traces deluxe. That, that's what it was about. And also with with the the formation of Mango Books, I just thought to myself, well, I'd like to I'd like to do a book that gets out to a wider audience than than had been the case with Blurb, because a lot of people aren't aware of the Blurb website, and so uh, weren't really aware of the book. But with Mango, you've got uh, 
exposure on the Mango website and obviously uh, through Amazon as well. So it was really a case of doing a, a proper luxurious coffee table style book about the area where uh, where Jack the Ripper committed his crimes. That's That was really it. So. And the book launched at the 2017 East End Conference that just took place a couple of weekends ago. Um, That's right, yes. Um, and obviously you were there to uh, sign books for the delegates. And I think there was a limited um, run um, of signed books through Mango. And so uh, how, if you don't mind me asking, how is it doing? It's doing very well. We've had actually got very few copies left now of the first print run um i mean it it sold far in excess of uh, of what i could have ever imagined it's it's been really quite amazing that people you know people have been so positive about it and and have said that it's you know something genuinely different that um you know you don't find with other ripper books um in fact one one of uh, one gentleman uh steve stanley um said that he he got his conference his uh copy of the book at the conference and took it back to read at his hotel room at half past 11 at night and before he knew it, it was half past one in the morning and he you know he planned to go straight to bed after a few minutes leafing through it and, and had spent two hours looking at it so it's keeping people awake is that book but <laughs> but yeah that that's um you know it, the, the, the response has been amazing so we, we're already um we already have a, a second print run uh, on order so uh you know the, if you go to, to amazon looking for the book and and, and it, you, there might be limited copies left but uh, if not then uh, in true amazon speak more are on the way i'm really looking forward to it i haven't received my copy yet it's in transit um from the uk and so uh just by your description of of steve stanley's experience with it now I really can't wait. Now, uh, Paul, um, as uh, many of our listeners know, is the book editor for Ripperologist magazine. And so he has received a copy uh, for review in Ripperologist. And Carl picked up a copy at the East End Conference. Uh, so we'll start with Paul. What, were, are, what are you um, here while the uh, artist and author is here on the podcast with us? <laughs> Um, uh, what did, what did you, what what were your impressions of the book Ripperland? I think it's a fantastic book. I, I'm sort of very reluctant sometimes to uh, say too much about books when uh, I, I'm aware of the author. I I, I don't think uh, Andrew and I have ever met, but uh, possibly briefly at a conference somewhere. But <laughs> I'm afraid White, I don't remember. White Travel but, Society in 2010. <laughs> ah, right. In which which case, it's not surprising that I don't remember. Um, but no, I th I think it's 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 a cracking book. Um, I'm, Mango's production values have always been very high on everything that they've produced so far. Uh, and uh, Andrew's photography, I don't know how the hell he does those uh, montages. <laughs> But as I think I've observed somewhere, uh, I think he probably sold his soul to the devil in order to achieve that because they are extraordinarily well done. It may I, I don't use Photoshop personally, but if that's the sort of stuff that it can produce, then uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, very, very impressed with the book. And it, it has a, a, a good and, and informative and interesting text that goes with the photograph, so it's not just a picture book. And Carl, what were your impressions? It, it's an, well, uh, Paul's right. It's, it's beautifully produced. It's it's um, 
it, it's very glossy and, and um, it, it's just the attention to detail as much as anything. I'm looking through it now, um, although I read it in the week, and it's one tiny thing, which would, uh, this may be an easy thing to do, I don't know, but on the title pages of all, all the uh, all the murders, um, Andrew, um, you drew a little, little maps with sort of, you know, this is where Essex Wharf was, this is where Kidian Tong was, this is where Mr. Taylor's patent shop was, like that, that sort of thing. And yeah. that alone is really, really informative. It's just a breakdown of exactly where the body was and exactly, you know, how close to the Cornish um, uh, Catherine Eddowes would have been. Um, and that's before you even look at the, you know, the, the enormous montages and uh, the overlaying you've got of, of different scenes in different places. Um, I, I think that that's that, that alone is fascinating for me because I'm, I'm I'm one of these people who like walking around the East End and staring at things. So um, that, that that's alone fantastic. And there's a few photos in there as well that I've never seen before. And you know, you always think that you've seen the majority of them, but I've never seen that picture of Harris's backinists on um, on Burner Street. Mm. That, you, that, that you've um, you, you've basically blended that into the whatever that shop is at the moment, the big red one on the corner of Commercial Road. Um, yeah, that, so, that's right. so that was fascinating to see that as well. I've never seen that before. Yeah, that, that one was uh, was one of the many that uh, Philip Hutchinson uh, let me use. And uh, it, it's it, it's strange when, when, uh, when, when you look at the building now, it's hard to believe that that is actually the original tobacconist. Yes, yeah, uh, same building. You know, that, 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 that had the clock in the window that um, uh, Louis Deemschutz saw, saw the time in, and, uh, you know, as, as he turned into Burner Street. Um, it, it's the one building. I mean, if, I think now everything down, down Henrique Street is as is the oldest thing there is the school which is 1909 i think everything else has, has just gone yeah. now there was yeah. one one building which there's a picture of it in the book about halfway down on, on the opposite side to where um Burners, uh, where uh, duffield's yard was uh, which survived until a few years ago and and even that was was swept away so there's there's, there's nothing really to see but the, weirdly enough the tobacconists at the corner of the the street facing on to uh, commercial road is still yeah. there so it's kind of nice that that's there so it is it's it, it, it's fascinating that it's the same building and um i've always known that it, it, that it was called harris's but to actually see the sign there just really brought it alive i think and i think that's yeah. what the book does it really brings the whole area to life and think you know even there are some pretty grim areas now in spitalfield and, and Whitechapel. um but to see that you know how much that area has changed completely is just really riveting it really is mm, yeah i mean i think one of the things that that sort of um spurred me on to do these is because you, when we when we all read our, our uh, you know books on, on on the case, we see these photographs in isolation, um, and, and many of them are very familiar to us. But then, if you actually visit the area, it's hard to put it into context as to where these photographs were taken. I mean, yeah. take for example the, the famous shot of the uh, the women sat outside the um, the White House, the the lodging house on um, Flower and Dean Street. If you go back to that site now. It's it, the, the the frontage of the Florentine Street cuts through somebody's living room. You know, the the, the road the road yeah. isn't even there, and it's really hard to sort of get a get a sort of uh, visual handle on on what what there is to see now. Um, so that that's something I do enjoy doing, but it, it's it's helpful when you're doing those montages if there's something to to marry up between the old and the new. And obviously, with the the Harris's tobacconists um, photograph, there is because the, it's one of the few things that's still there. You know, so. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite pleasing to, to to see things like that. That uh, some things that have survived, you know, 130 years, right down to the cobblestones in the street was uh, in that Harris's yeah. photograph. Yeah. So you've managed to 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 montage those in, uh, and and so you you can actually go and 
not only see the same shot but stand on the same same stones that uh, Louis yeah. presumably drove over to get. I assume they're the same. Uh, that, that actual spot is being tarmacked over, um, so, so the, 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 the sets that appear in the, in the photograph aren't exposed now. But a little bit yeah. further down down the street towards um, Duckfield's Yard, well, the site of Duckfield's Yard, um, there are some exposed sets. Now, I was yeah. looking at them just over a week ago and thinking, well, are they actually um, original or not? It's very hard to tell with all the, you know, the redevelopment and relaying of road surfaces and obviously um, damage from wartime bombing. It's very difficult to know what's what's original and what isn't. But uh, it's uh, it, it was something I wanted to leave in the photo, though, with those original sets, because, um, you know, it's, it's part of the old world, really. It's part of uh, something that uh, doesn't really exist now, the uh, setted roadways that, uh, you know, are few and far between now. Yeah, just adds to the atmosphere of the whole thing. Yes, absolutely, it does, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a very atmospheric book, I think, with, with um, you know, the mixture of the two areas, the two areas, well, three or four areas at some point. Uh, for example, your Mitre Square section um, is just photo upon photo upon photo. Of, no, this is thirties. <laughs> this this is how it was, you know, in the eighties, and now this is what it is today. And yeah, I, did, I didn't do that. I only did that for, for Mitre Square. So so basically, yeah. that um, you you've got. Um, a photograph taken a couple of months ago in 2017 of the square as it is now, um, pretty much redeveloped to suit this new office building that's been built in Mitre Square. Uh, overlaid on top of that was a 2008 photograph from the same viewpoint, looking into the the, the square that most of us know and, and remember. And then laid on top of that is the 1928 photograph by William Whiffin uh, yeah. of, yeah. of Ripper's Corner. So it's sort of like a three stage montage. It's kind of yeah. strange. <laughs> Most most of them only involved two images rather than three. That was just yeah. an exception, really. Yeah. Now, do you use ordnance survey maps or any other survey tools to pinpoint the exact location where the um, older photographs were taken? Or how do you go about doing... Is it just by trial and error? Or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, some of them, you, you can work out where they were taken from, uh, by making reference to the old photograph, there's, there's possibly a, a ref, you know, some reference point in there that appears in modern day. Um, but more often than not, if, if everything's been um, moved around and demolished, like, for example, um, Flower and Dean Street, which no longer exists except for a, a very small stub next to Commercial Street, um, if, if you if you were to, uh, as I did in, in uh, Fragments of the East End, if you were to do a photo montage of the photograph you, of the White House, then you've got to do some research beforehand. And, and that's basically done by by scanning the old Ordnance Survey map. And it's usually the 1894 one uh, that most people use. Uh, and, and, and in Photoshop, laying it over a screen grab of uh, Google, um, Google Maps, Google, Google Aerial View, and marrying up the streets that appear on the modern day view with the the drawn streets on the ordnance survey map and once you've done that you can highlight which building you're interested in which obviously in this case would be the white house then then take the map off the the, off the photoshop image um and you just left you left with a marker that says exactly where the frontage of the white house was so you you then take that to the location um, and, and then take the photograph you know from roughly the same angle so you, you do need to do a little bit of research in, in in most cases but for some things i mean the for example like mitre square the the boundaries of mitre square have, have stayed the same even even if all the buildings have gone so you don't need to do quite as much uh, research in, in in you know beforehand uh, with things like that 
So in some cases, you're taking the physical, uh, like a, a print of the the old photograph down with you to the location. And yes. Have it in one hand and your camera in the other hand to try to match up location of where the original photograph was taken. That's right. Right, although in, in recent years, I've, I basically just saved them to, to my iPhone and then and then use that to, right. to, as a reference tool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's quite frustrating. I mean, I, I live, uh, it's about 200 miles away from London. So when I get the, the modern day photographs home and get them on the computer, if I haven't quite framed them correctly, it's a, it's a long way to go back um, to, to, to reshoot the, the, the photograph if you haven't got it quite right. So um, I do tend to take quite a lot of photos just for one uh, montage just to get it lined up correctly you know just to get to make sure that i've got exactly the same angle that the um the victorian era photograph photographer had um when taking the original shot so it's it's trial and error and occasionally you use little tricks to get things to fit because obviously the um that the lenses used in cameras in victorian times are totally different to the lenses used now in, in iphones and you get a different kind of curving effect on the edge so sometimes you have to tweak things just to get things to marry up so uh, little tricks like that though you could say they're cheating but i don't think they are <laughs> that must be kind of an experience on in itself standing on the site uh, you know thinking that you've got the exact spot correct where um, the photographer was standing a hundred years ago um, taking the same photograph it, it is and, uh, and it's it, it's strange sometimes um i mean a, a prime example i think uh, of, of the sort of it gives a little connection with the past i mean for example um uh, philip hutchinson kindly let me use his duckfields yard photograph now that that's only ever been published in his book about the duckfields yard um uh, photograph and the Whitby collection uh, that was published by amberley in 2009 and uh, i sort of said you know any chance I could use it, and he sort of uh, thought for a while, and then said, "I'll go on." Then why not? So he uh, he let me use that in one of the montages. But it's strange when you see the original uh, photo. Um, that one thing that became apparent when I went to the site of Duckfield's yard to take the modern day photograph to merge with uh, Philip's photograph is that the original photographer, the the the, the uh, American lady tourist who was on, on holiday in 1900, she must have held the camera right down by the ground because it's a very, very yeah. low angle. And uh, I, when I took my photograph, I was crouching down next to a car looking very suspicious, um, but looking like I was going to slash the tires or something. But in actual fact, the... Um, I, I haven't gone low enough with, with my camera, and so I had to do a bit of tweaking to, to sort of shift the perspective when I got it home. So it, it, it makes you realise, you know, it gives you an idea of just, just how people took photographs in those days. It's possible even that um, the, the the 1900 photographer may have even set the camera down on the floor to steady it, because obviously you, you, you had to you had to keep those cameras steady because you needed a longer, long exposure, uh, which is apparent in the Duckfields Yard photograph because there, there's some blurring of faces, as there are in many of photographs um, you know when people have moved so it could well be that the the camera was rested on the floor when right. uh, when it was taken but uh, yeah it, it does give you a little connection with with the past when you when you're taking these, oh, these photos and with those uh, correct me if i'm wrong but with those brownie box cameras um would she have been looking through the top of it now that I don't honestly know. Um, maybe maybe one of the other guys can help me out on this. I'm not interested. It's possible, um, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to think now. Didn't the very early ones just wasn't it just a case of just point and shoot? Really, I don't even know if they had any kind of viewfinder. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not an expert on old cameras, um, strangely enough. So <laughs> I couldn't tell you for, for, for definite. 
It's interesting to think about. I had never, uh, I, and I've given a lot of thought to that Dutfield Jard photograph, but that's one of the things that I never really thought about um, how she might have been, uh, you know, on her hands and knees uh, with the brownie box camera on, yeah. on the ground in, it, it, in order it, yeah. to capture that shot. That That's a level of uh, interest in, in capturing those. The, the, if anyone's not familiar with the photograph, the residents or, or, or passersby or whoever are lining both sides of the uh, passageway into Dutfield Yard. So she made some effort to compose, you know, this photograph, uh, getting the people um, lined up along the wall and everything. But to think that she had sat, set the camera down on the ground to capture that shot, something that I had never thought about before. Yeah, it, it certainly looks that way. I mean, uh, the it's just the, the actual angle of, of the of of the yard itself as it as it sort of uh, you know pa- passes off into the distance. It, it, it's different to how you would you would expect to see it um, if you were standing at the entrance. So I, I do think it's a very sort of low shot, but it certainly became apparent that um, when, when I when I got got the um, the modern day shot home that I needed to, to tweak it to make it look like it was lower than I'd actually taken it. So mm-hmm. a bit of photo trickery there. <laughs> Uh, describe to us uh, some of the you don't have to go through all of them but just some of the examples of you've mentioned Mitre Square and Henrik Street Um, what are some other locations that um, are in Ripperland you've done photo montages of well I've done them for all the main um, areas that uh, all, all the main sites linked with what we call the Whitechapel murders. So, um, effectively, we've got montages of um, the area. Uh, we've got Osborne Street, um, where uh, Emma Elizabeth Smith uh, was attacked. Um, and also in that chapter, we've got uh, St Mary Matfellon, which was the, the Whitechapel, uh, and also the Royal London Hospital. Um, so there's montages of those. And then we've got uh, Gunthorpe Street, or St. G- uh, uh, George Yard buildings, uh, montages of those. Um, and, and we've got the five canonical murder sites as well. We've got uh, Goulston Street, um, obviously where the, the uh, uh, torn piece of apron and the graffito was left. We've got the we've got Castle Alley where Alice McKenzie uh, was murdered. We've got Pynchon Street and Swallow Gardens. We haven't got uh, Clark's Yard at Poplar High Street because it, it, there is a photo of the area in the back of the book uh, called Outside Ripperland, but it's not actually in what I term Ripperland, you know, being Whitechapel and Spitalfields. So there, there are various, very, basically I've, I've tried to include um, uh, at least one montage of every location that, that I can, you know, that, that, that's uh, input, pertinent in the case. But we, I did come up against a, pr- a problem with both Pynchon Street and Swallow Gardens because in both those locations, all we have to go on are our newspaper drawings. The the only photographs, there are photographs of Swallow Gardens um, taken by John Gordon Whitby in 1961. Um, but they're, they're quite dark images, and I didn't really think they were suitable for showing how the archway was um, in Victorian times. And Pynchon Street, we just have the overhead plan uh, of, of the arches and a couple of newspaper drawings. So nothing particularly suitable for using in a, in a photo montage. So what I actually did with those two locations was I actually recreated the scene using various textures in Photoshop and then darkening them and adding 
um, you know, gas lamps in, in various places. Um, so what you're actually seeing there is almost, it's not quite up to um, uh, Jake, who does who did the gra graphics for the definitive Jack the Ripper and, and, and CSI Whitechapel, but um, it, it's going along those lines. I've kind of recreated the, the scene there. So they're not, that's not, not just a photograph put on top of another photograph. It's, um, it's been an actual Photoshop rebuild because there aren't any photographs available at the sites. So... That's really what you've got there. The, um, there are a few other other um, photographs that came from uh, Jack London's uh, People of the Abyss, which aren't directly linked with the case, but um, there's one particular one showing people queuing up outside a butcher's on Oldgate High Street. Um, and that's right next to um, the passageway that leads to the, the old Still and Star pub. So I, I've done a montage of that. It's really just showing, you know, some other th other sort of locations um, in the area, um, but I think you know by by one mean or one one method or another, I've I've managed to cover every location uh, within you know mentioned in the case. Um, probably the only thing I haven't really montaged are things like uh, mortuaries and police stations. That's the only thing I haven't montaged. So there we go. <laughs> and Carl mentioned uh, seeing a photo in your book that he had never seen before. Is this combination the the older photographs that you use? Is it a combination of photos that are in the pub, public domain that maybe would be familiar to some of us? And and then you mentioned Philip um, uh, giving you permission to use this field jarred photo. So is it kind of a combination of public domain photos and photos that are from private collections? That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, Philip was was very very uh, generous in, in allowing me to use um, not not only um, the Duffield's Yard photo, but uh, some of the Whitby collection from 1961, uh, and a few other photos that um, that, that had appeared previously in uh, the uh, the London of Jack the Ripper book that he did with uh, with Rob Clark. Um, and these the, the, these photographs, you know, they have been seen before, but um, probably not used in, in a montage like uh, montages like I've done. But then, yes, there's there's some public domain ones, and uh, John Bennett uh, let me use um, a couple of overlapping photographs that he'd taken of um, Derwood Street um, by the, the old board school in 1990. So Essex Wharf has gone. But um, there's still a lot of, um, you know, der dereliction around and, and, and sort of um, it's, it's not a scene that you would recognise now because it's all it's all part and parcel of the, um, the, the, the railway construction works around Whitechapel Station. So uh, that's in there as well. Um, I'm trying to think what else we've got. There's been various people. Uh, there's also photographs. The, the the newest old photographs in the book uh, were actually taken by uh, Ray Luff in, two, in sorry in 1995, and uh, Loretta Lay kindly let me use a couple of those. Um, one of the the wash houses on Old Castle Street, and one of um, Woods Buildings, which uh, linked um, where where Polly Nichols was murdered through to um, Whitechapel Road. So there have been various sources, um, some of them public domain, but most most you know, mostly private collections. And I've, I've been very sort of uh, very touched by people's generosity that they've said, you know, this looks fantastic. You know, you you are welcome to use it. You know, so that's uh, that's been very very heartwarming. Now, there were um, some instances that um, in which you 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 had seen a photograph that you wanted to use as a montage. <clears throat> I'm specifically thinking of the one that Sarah Wise discovered out of um, that very uh, limited uh, run newspaper of Dorset Street, um, mm -hmm. where 
you had seen seen a photograph like that 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 is i'm i'm not too familiar with uh what makes a photograph public domain in the uk but um but i believe in this instance it, you had seen a photograph that you wished you could have used um as a uh-huh. photo montage but simply being unable to trace the provenance of it meant that you can't you couldn't use it is that right or how does how does that kind of work well that that's the thing really i mean it's it, it is very confusing and, and it's probably a dangerous area too to to try and uh, blunder my way through but the um the, the photo that uh, that sarah wise posted on twitter um i just thought would make a, a lovely photo montage i mean the same view now is a building site it's a brand new development right across the site of the old dorset street so it wouldn't have made a particularly exciting photo montage but i thought the the the, the we were so used to seeing that that one view looking down on dorset street um which i think was taken on the same day as the one that sarah wise found um and in the end i had to use the familiar one um uh, but basically I, I i converted it to etched glass and i had it suspended over over a construction site so i, I did something arty with it but the actual um the, the photo that Sarah Wise uh, found, I thought, was absolutely superb, and it was such a such a refreshing thing to see after after seeing the same image over and over again for years on end. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I traced it back to, um, uh, I forget which which library it was. There was there was a um, uh, possibly the Library of Congress or something. I'm not entirely certain who, uh, where, but uh, again, it, it, I, I never managed to find out who owned the rights to it. So I thought, in the end, well, I'll, I'll drop that idea and just use the uh, the standard photograph of Dorset Street that we all know. So, <laughs> uh, Andrew, you um, did a li- you performed a neat little trick with the cars that appear in the mo- the modern day images yes, uh, about yeah. your, reg- your registration plates. And I've just been staring at the one in Berners Street for a while until it finally. Worked out that the registration plate says Liz Long. Yes, uh, <laughs> and that, that was very cunning. I thought just because uh, I suppose you've got to hide all all vehicle registration plates anyway, and, uh, and that was yeah. that was coming along. Yeah, I, that's. I thought it was only fair to the owners of the vehicles that I've, I've captured in the photos is to hide the number plates. You know, um, it, it just for a confidentiality point of view. Um, uh, have, you, have you seen the number plate on the on the photo that has the Harris's tobacconists? I'm looking at it now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you told me about this one. Though. I think I did tell you about that one. Um, uh, but yeah, it's basically just a little visual joke. There's, there are a few little visual jokes in there, like well, oh, very nice. I, I've yeah. got it here. It's CA fifty four zero US. Yeah, very funny. Cashews. <laughs> Cashew, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. cashew, sorry, yeah. Yeah, another, another list tried uh, reference. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, there, there are a few little t- jokes and things in there. I mean, there's the the, the photo montage taken from the um, the top of the steps in um, at Christchurch, looking down Brushfield Street, and I've used a photo out of um, the, the people of the abyss. Um, and if you look at the photograph, one of the people in the old, fo- the old photograph has stepped out of the photograph and is standing on the model day pavement and is shaking hands right. with with with, a, with a, a modern day passerby so uh, i've got little things like that in just for, for, for people if they, if they, they care to look it's it's uh, just a little added uh, bit of fun really but uh, yeah but yeah the, the uh, it's uh, it, it amuses me when i do things like that because <laughs> it, it solves a problem as well at the same time that, that's why i thought it worked really, really well it's uh, and of course it makes you want to find all the cars now to see what else you've been doing while you've been 
I think I think I've amended every single number plate that's in shot, but some of them are quite hard to, to work out. I've, I've made some quite cryptic ones as well. But yeah, did you have to manipulate the photographs at all to remove people or anything like that in the modern day photos? Or did yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I tried to to have as few people in. I think I think I've managed to succeed on 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 most of the photos in, in not having many people around. If there are, then they're, they're sort of far away from the camera, so they're not sort of identifiable. Um, but I, you know, it, it, some, sometimes I, I mean, I, I took a photograph of the site of 29 Hanbury Street, um, which um, isn't a particularly inspiring location now. It's just the, the site of the old Truman's uh, Brewery um, bottling plant. But when I took the photograph, I, I got uh, John Gordon Whitby's photograph from 1961 to montage into it. And there were two people chaining a bike up to a tree there and taking an awfully long time about it. But I, I knew for a fact that when I when I did the photo montage, they would be covered up by the old photographs. So I just took the shot with them in, in shot, knowing that they, they wouldn't appear in the final version. So but any any photographs that are just standalone photographs that don't that don't incorporate an old photo uh, old photograph, um, they are um, I try and keep people out of them as much as possible because at the end of the day, the, the, the book's about the, the streets and the buildings um, rather than uh, passers-by. <laughs> Andrew, the book is is excellent, and I, I don't often uh, say things like that outside of the pages of Ripperologist, but uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, so well done. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned earlier, Andrew, now that Ripperland is published, you don't know what to do with yourself. Do you have any projects that you're currently working on or ones that are coming up? Or have you given any thought to putting out um, a follow-up to Ripperland? Yeah, well, I'm not, not really sort of thought about any kind of follow-up yet, but um, I would like to to do some kind of collaboration with somebody because uh, for all the for all the the, you know, the, the writing in the book, I, I'm not a, a, a natural writer at all. I don't really enjoy the process. Um, I mean, for example, Carl Carl likes writing. Carl is a writer, so that's that's great. But um, I, I tend to prefer the the graphics and the, and the photography side. So I, for me to do another book it would be great if somebody else would write it and then i could illustrate it but mm -hmm. there's, there's no no plans to actually do anything at the moment um i'm just really going to uh concentrate on on doing the um the the, the conference pack and graphics and posters and what have you for the uh 2018 uh east end conference which uh, we're now beginning to plan and put together so um, we, should, we should talk andrew we should <laughs> we should <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate something of yours, Carl. That'll do nicely. <laughs> okay. Do um, but yeah, that's that's really uh, all at the moment. But I think if anything, I've spent such a, a long period of time doing doing Ripperland. It, I think it's going to be nice just to have a have a few months off and uh, you know just just live life as it were. So. Well, that sounds good, Andrew. Ripperland is available from Mango Books and Amazon, and beginning its second print run already after only being out for a couple of weeks. So congratulations to you for that. It is thank you very much is a hot seller but for those listeners who are interested in picking up a copy they might have to wait a week or so but the stock will be replenished until of course it sells out again so i um congratulate you andrew on all the work you've done and, thank you very much thank and you. on a personal note i i thank you for the support that you um, have given to the podcast 
with uh, being responsible for all of the advertising and artwork for 10 Weeks in Whitechapel. You've done a couple of Whitechapel really? Society meetings for me and all of the artwork uh, that's being used for the release of the East End conferences and other conferences that you did the graphic design work for that I've released as a podcast. Of course, you're responsible for those artworks. So um, I sincerely thank you for your support of the show. And you're very welcome, Jonathan. Very welcome. And thank you very much for being on the show okay. today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that was Andrew Firth discussing his latest book, Ripperland. Ripperland is available via Mango Books, and Andrew has a Facebook page if you'd like to see some examples of his photography. And you can find that group on Facebook by searching for Ripperland. I'd like to again thank Andrew, Paul Begg, and Carl Kopek for being on this episode. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.